as I was, um, well, actually for weeks I've known that this is the chapter in 1 Corinthians that I was going to be speaking from. Now, I have to tell you, I wasn't too excited about it. I read the heading, and then I read the chapter and thought, what? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, even after um, preparing and, and looking, I, you know, sometimes I look through Bible study books and to kind of see where they're coming from in this chapter. You know, a lot of Bible study books just skip right over chapter 5. They just go from 4 to 6, just like that, 4 to 6. Skip right over 5. And so it's one that is not preached on or taught on too much. Um, actually, I was looking, I even look up other sermons just to see where people come, you know, where, where they go with this chapter. And uh, a pretty famous pastor um, from a mega church, um, he was doing a series on the church gone wild. And I thought, that's pretty fitting. That's catchy, but pretty fitting. And so it's a difficult chapter. Um, the subject is difficult. It's uncomfortable. It's something we don't want to talk about or, or even really look at. And that is this idea of immorality in the church, especially sexual immorality. Now, as serious as this immorality was, even more serious was the church's tolerance of it. Although this letter was written to the church in Corinth over 1,900 years ago, it could be written to any Western society church today. Sin, sexual sin, and permissiveness were as rampant then as they are today. What we find here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a man in the church who is living in sin with his father's wife. Now you see it says father's wife because it's not, it's, it's saying that this is not his birth mother. This is not his natural mother. He wasn't sleeping with his mom, but he was sleeping with his father's wife. So most likely his stepmother. But does that really make a difference? Because it's still considered incest. It's still a sin. And the church not only was ignoring this sin, but they were so tolerant of it. As the church was not only ignoring the sin, um, it, it even says it was reported. So it was widely known. It was like the front page of the Corinth World Herald. Church leader caught sleeping with his sex with his stepmother. Everybody knew it, and no one was doing anything about it. You know, this sin should have been shocking to the Corinthians. But like today, as sin creeps in, we become more and more tolerant. And pretty soon it just becomes a way of life. Nothing seemed to break through their pride and boasting. Their arrogance, their self-satisfying and self-confident behavior excused or rationalized this wicked behavior within the congregation. They were proud of their divisions and proud of their tolerance for sin. The word immorality in the Greek is the word pornea, which is where we get the word pornography. Pornography is a 13.3% billion dollar industry in the United States and 97 billion dollar industry around the world. 
At a 1996 Promise Keepers survey at one of their stadium events, it revealed that over 50% of the men in attendance were involved with pornography within one week of attending the event. That was 20 years ago. 51% of pastors say cyber porn is a possible temptation. 37% say it is the current single struggle for them today. Over half of evangelical preachers admit viewing pornography within the last year. Nine out of ten children between the ages of 8 and 16 have viewed pornography on the internet, in most cases unintentionally. The average age of first internet exposure to pornography is age 11. Immorality, pornography, is destroying our culture. It's infiltrating our children, our families, our churches. And so today, and this is not just for men, women is just as, just as much of an issue. If you find yourselves struggling with the addiction of pornography, there is help for you, and I pray that you find it. You're not alone. As we read just a few statistics, you're perhaps in the majority. But you don't have to stay there, and there's help for you. Paul tells the church, you are not mourning over this sin. A church that, is, that does not mourn over sin, especially sin within its own fellowship, is on the edge of spiritual disaster. When we cease to be shocked by sin, we lose a strong defense against it. Let me say that again. When we cease to be shocked by sin, we lose a strong defense against it. And that is what was happening in Corinth. They were following their own feelings and rationalizations rather than God's word. They found themselves ignoring and perhaps justifying flagrant sin within their midst. God takes the purity of his church seriously, and he commands his children to take it seriously too. Let's just work through this chapter a little bit. Verse 3 says, Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. In other words, Paul is saying, I don't need to be there to know what's going on. I don't need to be on a fact-finding mission to find out this guy's side of the story. This should be a no-brainer. Can't you see what is happening here? Verse 4 and 5 go on to say, When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Now Paul is not saying, let's have a ceremony when someone would say, okay, Satan, here he is, come and get him. And then the devil would arrive and drag this man kicking and screaming and be tortured until he confessed his sin. That's not what Paul is saying. But the body of Christ needs to agree that this guy is not to be fellowshiped with. Discipline is not inconsistent with love. It is the lack of discipline, in fact, that is inconsistent with love. Hebrews 12, 6 says, Those who love, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. The Lord disciplines his children because he loves them, and we will discipline our brothers and sisters in the Lord if 
we truly love God and we truly love them. A lot of us are parents in this room, and if we're not, we're perhaps aunts and uncles, we're teachers, leaders, and when we have to discipline our children, it's not because we don't love them. We do, we discipline them because we do love them and we want to try to help them change their behavior. Jesus set forth the basic method of church discipline found in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Something perhaps you're familiar with. It says, if your brother or sister sins and goes to the, and sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they do not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. The Corinthians were well aware of this teaching, well aware of these principles taught by Jesus. As the Lord had instructed, the local congregation was responsible for the discipline Trevor and I, in our 18 or so years of ministry, have had to deal with blatant sin in the church on a few occasions. But until someone is ready to make the decision to turn from their sin, there is little we or the church could do about their destructive behavior. But we could not sit idly by and allow it to go unnoticed. You see, it's not that we have to be perfect in order to come to the Lord. That is not what I'm saying. We don't all have to be perfect in order to be able to be a part of this fellowship, but we need to be willing to be made perfect. We need to be willing to allow God to change our hearts and to, and, and to point out our sin and allow God to heal us. You know, what would have happened if we had just said, oh, it's okay, God loves you and we love you, and you know what, you just keep on cheating on your wife. It's okay. And you know what? Cheat on your wife, and we'll have a special service for you and other adulterers in the church. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? It would be crazy to say that or to even think that. So to sit idly by and ignore it was not okay. What happens next? What happens is what Paul gets to next. Verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. You do not, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Now, yeast, or um, this uh, analogy of unleavened bread or leavening of the dough, um, is, it, was a, it was a common analogy and something that the people of the Church of Corinth would understand. He uses it to describe the effects of sin on the body. Yeast adds carbon dioxide uniformly to a lump of dough by a process of digestion or decomposition. The yeast digests the sugar and expels CO2. So you put in a little bit of yeast into the dough and let it sit. That yeast will fill the whole dough with carbon dioxide, and then you can bake it. And voila, it's bread. Perhaps an analogy that a lot of us don't understand. If we've never <laughs> used yeast, we just go to the store and buy the bread, right? Um, but they would have understood this, this idea of how just a little bit of yeast, a little bit of sin, a little bit of yeast permeates a whole batch of dough. Just like sin, a little bit of sin can permeate 
an entire church. Sin, if not dealt with, does the very same thing. Now we're talking here about open sin. I know that each and every one of us, including myself, have things that the Lord is dealing with us on. Failures that we might have. Areas that we're weak in. But today I'm talking about sin that everybody knows about. If you fail to deal with it, then the enemy can start working in a pattern of sin. Perhaps one could say, hey, if this guy did it, then everyone is okay with it. Then why won't I do it? What I'm doing isn't nearly as bad as this guy. He's, he's sleeping with his stepmom. soon you could have a whole church filled with sin and the gospel which represents a way of escaping sin becomes useless if the wages of sin are tolerance by the body instead of death then why do we need salvation the scripture says if the wages of sin are death is death but if we're if but if we accept this sin and say the wages of sin are tolerance by the body instead of death why do we need salvation it's the same way in our lives if we let sin go it will start to decay and spread through other areas of our life and it will make us useless for the Lord so what do we do verse 7 get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are for Christ our Passover lamb has been sanctified. Don't you know that one rotten apple can spoil the whole barrel? We have heard that, haven't we? The picture of yeast and unleavened bread would have been very clear to the Jews in the Corinthian church. In Exodus chapter 6, the Lord tells the Israelites still in Egypt to go to their houses and get rid of all yeast, then make unleavened or flat bread. The Lord told his people that they should do this to remember that he has brought them out of Egypt with a strong hand. The analogy of sin and the world, while the world is yeast or sin, it is the natural way of things. But God came to bring us out of this world and remove the sin or yeast from us. It was no small thing he did, giving his son Jesus in order to remove sin from us. And so, to allow sin to enter back into our lives really mocks the work that God did on our behalf. eight says therefore let us keep the festival not with the old yeast the yeast of malice and wickedness but with the bread but with bread without yeast the bread of sincerity and truth sincerity is the act of genuine honesty integrity for which truth results i think paul is here trying to tie the first four chapters of first corinthians with this chapter five the israelites celebrated the festival for God's deliverance. And in a sense, that is what we do every time we gather together. We celebrate our deliverance from sin. What is that celebration to be like, Paul asks? These people celebrated the festival with malice and wickedness. Malice referring to the division and the backbiting that was going on. Wickedness referring to their tolerance of open, unrepented sin. That's not the right way to celebrate our deliverance from sin and death. We should celebrate without the sin we are supposed to leave behind in the world. 
sincerity in our relationship with our brothers and sisters, and truth in the relationship with God. I think a great illustration of this is what happens um, all the time at the ARC. Uh, Captains Clark um, have celebrations all the time without the influence of drugs and alcohol. Celebrating having a New Year's Eve party or a Super Bowl party without the influence of sin, in this case, drugs and alcohol. Verse 9 through 13 says, I have written you in my, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In this case, you would have to leave this world. But I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. A church that does not discipline a sinning member is like a person who has good reason to believe that he has cancer but refuses to go to a doctor because he either doesn't want to face the problem or doesn't want to face the treatment. If he waits too long, his whole body will be permeated with cancer, with the disease, and it will be too late for treatment. No church is healthy enough to resist the contamination from a persistent sin in its midst any more than the healthiest and most nutritious bushel of apples can withstand contamination from even a single bad one. The solution in both cases needs to be separation. Now let's be completely honest. We naturally draw back from this kind of confrontation, don't we? It's not easy. It's not easy to confront someone who we know knows better someone in the church who is blatantly sinning. In the family of God, it is our deepest desire to support and love. And so sometimes discipline and separation seem harsh and unloving. Can we really care at the same time deal decisively with sin in the fellowship, even passing judgment on sin and, a, and sinner as Paul is suggesting? Today, too many insist that what might not be right for you is not necessarily wrong for them. You heard that before? It's something we hear a lot. What might not be wrong for you is not, might not necessarily be wrong for them. In the first century church and in our world today, the rights of the individual are stressed. While old distinctions between right and wrong get blurrier and blurrier every single day. But Paul is helping the Corinthians and us to think through a number of difficult things. In this process, Paul is helping us to learn more about God's mind and heart and more about what it means to truly love one another. Our Christian life is not expected to be lived in a monastery or a compound or behind huge walls. Like Jesus, we are expected to mix with those who are not saved, people who are still in sin. We are instructed to go out and be 
his hands and feet to be the good news. We are called to witness, to share that good news. No, we shouldn't say to them, what you're doing is great, I'm so proud of you, keep on sinning. But no, our message should be that God loves you and doesn't want you to suffer the consequences of your rebellion against him. And he has made a way for you to be rescued from your sin. And that is through his son, Jesus. That is not condemning, nor is it tolerant, but it is the gospel. It is not that everyone in this church is to be perfect, for that is impossible. Everyone falls into sin. Everyone has imperfection. Everyone has shortcomings. The church, in some ways, is a hospital for those who are sick. I think we've heard that before. One of the greatest protections from sin is that we have Christians, that we as Christians have, is simply focusing on our Lord and the sacrifice that he has made for us. When dealing with sin and sin in the church, we need to identify and deal with sin in our own life first. Ask yourself, what do people say about me? When people talk about me when I'm not around, especially non-Christians, what do they say about me? Would it be hard for someone to recognize that I'm a Christian without me telling them? If that's the case, then it's time for a heart change. It's time to evaluate my own life. It's time for each of us to look at ourselves and say, am I, is there something in me that is causing someone else to stumble? Is there something in me that God is asking me to clean out? One of my most favorite verses in all of God's word is Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. That is a daily prayer of mine. And I think it could be a daily prayer for each and every one of us. Asking God to search us. To look at us, all those places that we don't want anyone else to see. Those things that we do when no one else is around and ask God to point those things out. What is it? What is it in me, God, that offends you? Point those things out, Lord, and not only point them out, but help me change. Lead me on the right path. Well, this morning our response to God has come. Today we're going to sing and reflect on the words of a song, Just As I Am. Just As I Am. Uh, is a very personal reflection for us today. If you look in your songbook, song number 503, you can see the words, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And thou that bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. If praying that prayer today for you, that prayer of David, O search me, O oh God, and know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. If praying that prayer causes you to pause, God causes you um, to say, oh, there's that. 
If you have sin in your life today and you need to confess that and ask the Lord's help with that today, this is a place of prayer. This is a place where we have this fellowship of believers, this group of people here who love you and who want to see us all lifted up, all of us turn from the sin that we might be facing in our lives. Coming to the altar is just uncomfortable. It's okay. It's okay. God knows your heart. We're going to sing that song today. And if, if you need to figure something out with God, I encourage you to do that. Let's, 